Thanks for listening to the Sunday Teaching Podcast from Salt and Light, a community based in Fort Worth, Texas, making disciples of Jesus together by seeking His kingdom in everyday life. Find out more at saltandlightfw.com. All right, so the reading from God's Word this morning is Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 13, if you want to turn there. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Um, If you're new with us for the first time, my name's Ben. I'm honored and glad that you're here. And if you're not new with us, or you are, um, I'm really excited that you're here today um, as we start into a few conversations we're going to have all the way through Easter, and I'll tell you more about that here in a sec. But as we get into this, uh, again, we're in Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is where we're going to be. So if you don't have a Bible open or app pulled up, you're welcome to. Um, as you turn, if you haven't yet, um, I've mentioned this before, um, but the past few years, uh, I, I've gotten to spend a couple weeks every summer uh, about as far away from Fort Worth as you can be in Australia. Um, Jess got to go with me one year. Camp got to go with me last year. My family's going to get to go with us this year again. It's a, it's a huge honor to get to go to this upside-down place on the globe. Uh, and I, I just love it. Um, it's, uh, it's an honor to get to serve. It's an honor to be asked to do some, some ministry there. Um, there. There's some, as the Winslows know well, since they've lived there, the, there's some great, amazing people in Australia. It's, it's just stunning and humbling to see God's work in, in very different ways than we experience and also in some like eerily similar ways uh, as God's work is, is unified around the world. Um, but I also love getting to go there or anywhere because I just, I love different cultures. Anyone else? Like I love just learning and, and language and rhythms and the way that people do things, the, the way people interact, understanding the values. Like it's just exciting to me. It's fun. It's just so different, mostly. Because there's also, every time we've been, and, and Jess and I joke about it, there's, there's moments of confusion. And, and again, if you've been to any other culture, you, you resonate with this a little bit. Um, Jess and I joke, half joke, that Australia feels like a metaverse. It feels like exactly the same and also 180 degrees different. Uh, I mentioned that to Scott this morning. I was like, yeah, well, it's upside down. Yeah, and that's, like, that's literally how it feels. Like, we drive. We drive cars, but on the other side of the road. Um, they have McDonald's in Australia, um, and they have McCafes. Now, when you think of McCafe, like, what, what, what's the drink you get? Ice, sugar, filled up. Like, in Australia, like, they have the most fancy, 
like latte art espresso machines at McDonald's. And it's just like, it's McDonald's, but it's not McDonald's at all. Um, I did chicken curry pizza from Domino's. Like, it's just, it's Domino's, but it's not Domino's kind of thing. Um, it's the same, but it's different. Football means soccer. There's also footy, though, which is Australian rules. Uh, they, they abbreviate everything. So afternoon cookies is Arvo Bickies. It's like, that's confusing. But I want, I want the cookies, so I'll learn the language. <laughs> Um, but, but more than just those kind of things, politics are different. Uh, healthcare is different. Like there's massive cultural things that are, that are different. And, and the only reason I'm bringing up this point is that, that it's confusing at times when we find ourselves in a culture that's not our own. Is that fair? You know this if you've ever traveled somewhere. You know this even more if you've ever lived for a long time in other nations and other parts of the world with, with other people groups. But also, there's the reality that often today, not always, but, but often today, when people go to other people groups, when, other people, when people go to, to other countries uh, to live or to visit, we do so by our choice. Again, not always, but, but often when we do, we go by our choice choice. How much harder would it be? How much more confusing would the realities of different culture, different language, different ways of doing so be if you didn't choose to go? Like if you were forced into another culture. And this is the reality that the, that the video just introduced. That's the reality for, for the term exiles. If there's not a choice but to live in a world that's not your own, there's even bigger questions that have to be asked every day. What do I keep from my old culture? What do I adapt to in this new culture? What do I accept versus reject about this new culture? Their ways, their values, their ways of life. Um, identity struggle is massive and real. Where do, I, where do I belong? Who am I? Are the kind of questions that get asked. And they're big questions. And I want to submit they're the kind of questions that you and I should ask as we look at the world that we've been sent into. Who am I? Where do I belong? What do I accept? What do I reject? What do I bring with me from my true home versus leave behind? Because that term, exile, is one that we're going to hang on to for, for a couple months here on Sundays and some of your DNA conversations. It's not a term many of us probably think about a lot, if I'm honest. And if you're honest, but exile is a reality that God's people faced literally throughout the Bible and history. And that literal exile can help us answer some of the big questions that God's people should ask as we face what we might call spiritual exile today. Because here's the truth, friends. Whether we feel like it or not, you and I, if we follow Jesus... We're living in a land that is not our true home. Is that a fair starting point? We're living in a land that is not our true home. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. This may ruffle some of your feathers a little bit, but that's okay. Um, there is one, there's no, there's no geopolitical nation on earth that is God's country. There's no geopolitical nation on earth that's God's country. The United States of America is not God's nation. Again, 
that may be new for you. Happy to chat afterwards. Even the geopolitical entity that is today called Israel is not the promised land that God spoke of in the Old Testament. There's layers to that that I'm happy to unpack another day. But just as one data point, the nation of Israel as we know it was founded on May 14th, 1948. It's not what God was talking about in the Old Testament. And nor is any other nation, nor is any other country, nor is any other geopolitical entity God's country. The point is nowhere today will we find a geopolitical nation, country, people group who is called God's people. No political party is God's party. No system of government or economics is the only one fully right and biblical way. This shocking to anyone? We hear the opposite all around us, don't we? Um, and, and, and to be fair, there are some sects within some countries of, of, of small groups of people who are trying to live like first century Christians did. Or there's some sects in some countries, some small groups in some countries who are trying to live only by the Old Testament ways of, of, of living. Um, they would be called extremists, and, and they're, not, uh, they're not the widespread kind of thing. Similarly, but also 100% differently, there are some Islamic extremists, use that same word, who live within other geopolitical countries and people groups and that kind of stuff who form what they call caliphates, who try to live by Sharia law. Again, that's not widespread. It's happening. It makes the news. But it's not like the caliphate became some geopolitical country that is recognized by the rest of the world. There's extremist sects that do try to live in specific ways. There's extremist Christians, Muslims, Jews, and on and on and on. Extremist Hindus and Buddhists as well. Ex extremist Buddhists is really strange to me, since their whole <laughs> religion is based on peace and nirvana. So extremist is a strange way to call it. I mix those up. Anyway, um, by and large, there's no Christian country. Is that fair? first truth. Second truth that helps us realize we live in a land that's not our own is that none of God's people have dwelled in the place that God originally designed for them since Genesis 3. So that's the case we're going to build on. That's the case we're going to make today, and we're going to build on it for a few weeks. But, but again, exile is a huge theme through the Bible. God's people since since Eden, have always existed between two worlds. There's this homeland, and then there's this place we are. And, and, and confusion, if you've read any of the Bible, reigns no matter what point in biblical history they're in. God's people have always needed His wisdom. No geopolitical place is God's country, and since Genesis 3, none of us have lived where God has truly designed. But lest that feel hopeless and despairing, church, there's good news in this third truth. Through the Bible and through various forms of exile, we see there's hope. See, God is with his people while they're living in a land that's not their own. God has a purpose for his people while they're living in a land that's not their own. In the highs and lows, in the confusing moments, in the wise moments, in the moments of clarity, in the moments of need, hope is not found in culture or values or politics or people or some system or some country. 
what we see as we learn from these exiles through the Bible is that hope is found in God alone, no matter who they are, no matter where they are. And so if that's true, then hope is found in God alone, no matter who you are or where you are. Is that good news? I hope that's good news. And this is the last thing I'll say by way of introduction. This reality, the fact that we are spiritual exiles, that's true all the time. Uh, Culture can always be confusing. We always need God's wisdom. But, but maybe, maybe I'm alone in, the, alone in this. I don't think I am. Um, we're choosing to dwell on this theme of exile at the beginning of 2024 because this is likely going to feel like an extra confusing year. Uh, Forbes magazine uh, points out that this 2024 is the biggest election year globally, not just U.S. Let's not be just too American-centric for a moment. Globally, this is the biggest election year in all of history. 50 nations representing, hear me, 4.2 billion people are going to elect potentially a new leader this year. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of shifting sand. Uh, the divisions that, that felt so overt in, in the midst of COVID in 2020 and early 2021, not that they stopped then, but they felt really overt then, um, they may have been like turned down to a simmer in some of our minds, at least, in some of our relationships. But man, it feels like they're a flame ready to explode and boil over again, doesn't it? Around race and politics and gender and different points of views that seem incongruous and so we can't possibly interact with each other. There's debate and tension over things like, but not limited to, economics, education, environment, evangelicalism, etc., 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 and each of those feels like its own tripwire. It's about to explode. And, and there's so many people, people, politicians, pastors, pundits, philosophers, bloggers, worldview shapers, news outlets that are all vying to say, no, I'm the one prophet with the one objective truth. Listen to me for the right answer, the one right answer. I will offer you the only greatest hope. And that's so appealing because people are desperate for truth and answers and hope, yeah? Christians are desperate for truth and answers and hope. So are our non-believing friends, family members, and neighbors. And we get to praise God because we, if we follow Jesus, we have the greatest truth, the greatest answer, and the greatest hope. But it feels like we're living in a world where other answers and hope and truths can so bury the true and one right hope and answer. In all the noise and confusion and division of culture, We have a true home. We have a greater king. We have an eternal God. So we're in exile, but we have hope. Does that make sense? Good questions? Okay, there's a long intro, and I want to spend just the rest of our time today kind of laying a foundation for the coming weeks. So we're not going to dive fully, fully in today. We just want to lay a foundation for a multi-week conversation. So so I want to define exile, so we're all on the same page. 
And, and then we want to see how, how, how did we get ourselves into this mess that is exile. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Um, let's define exile. As, as I said, exile is not a term that many people talk about, think about very often. And so it's helpful today as we start these conversations to clarify. Talk to me a little bit. If you were to define exile, what would you say? What's it look like to be in literal exile? What do you think? Displacement. Displaced, yeah. Displacement, being displaced. Sent away from your home. Sent away from your home, yeah. And that sent thing is important. We'll come back to that. Separation. Yeah, separation. Se- separation, if I can add, like to, to all the, from all the things that seem familiar and normal. Banished. Banished, yeah. Yeah, longing to go back. There's very few exiles who don't have this yearning for home. I love how the video started. We all love, love the concept of home. Yeah, Piper? Sadness. Man, isn't it amazing? Yeah. 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 And relationships and all sorts of other things get cut off. Yeah, these are, these are helpful images. Um, according to one dictionary, there's others, uh, but the a, 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 a definition of exile is the state of being barred from one's native country, typically for political or punitive reasons. Um, it can be more than that, but it's not less than that. Um, it's about people living in another place. It's, it's pointing, I'm glad Paul mentioned this, um, it's not by choice. Very rarely are folks exiled by choice. Rather, there's another authority. To be exiled means to be sent from, or forced from, or kept from, or barred from one's true home. And because it's based on on another authority, exiles can't return home without the permission of another authority as well. Uh, To make this case, even more strongly, Ben mentioned the word banished. The word, we, the word we, we use for exile is literally from the French word that means banished. French. There's lots of exiles in history, and there's lots, frankly, of literal exiles today. Um, there's a Pulitzer Prize winning author uh, called Hisham Matar, and he has a new novel that's coming out this month, and it's about three Libyans three Libyan nationals from Libya who are exiled to London. And the New York Times, as they wrote about this new book, uses this phrase. He said, uh, the New York Times says, says that the novel explores the untranslatability of exile. Now, that's a huge word. It's ironic because it's hard to say and translate in and of itself. But the untranslatability of exile. In other words, it says there's nothing like the experience of being banned from home. You're not able to communicate fully about that experience. Um, I know some people in our church family, I know some people in this room understand more than the rest of us do. Um, Refugees and asylum seekers are often the terms we use for modern day exiles, forced from home for political or religious or other reasons. They're literal exiles today. Uh, From another angle, um, even before the Israel-Hamas war, um, 
I was talking with a Jewish friend of mine who, who was mentioning just how many of his people, how many people of his faith, Jewish faith, have embraced what he calls a modern and permanent diaspora. Now, diaspora is an old biblical term. It just means dispersion, like going from one place to lots of other places. Um, and, and so it's the state of living outside one's homeland. Um, and 70% of, of Jews already do um, live outside of this geopolitical entity called Israel. Um, and many of them, according to my friend, feel like they're unable or at least unwilling to return. Um, they've been dispersed because of family things. They've been dispersed because of monetary things. They're, they don't want to go back because of unrest and this kind of stuff. So again, maybe not literally forced out by an authority, but there's something deeper telling them, I can't go home. They don't feel able to do so. Um, from a third angle, I have a close friend who was born in Mexico. Uh, he was brought to the U.S. illegally as a child. Um, when he turned 18, he was given false documents. Um, he didn't even question it. It's just what his people did. It's what that community did. And, and he paid taxes and lived a very honorable life. He did very well for himself in the tech industry in California. Um, he lived by the U.S. standards, U.S. government, this kind of stuff. But over time, he started feeling guilty for this false identity, for his, in his words, crime. And so he reported himself to the federal government, trying to do the right and honorable thing. And at the time, uh, the federal government was starting to crack down on illegal immigration. And that specific administration chose, as their first step toward cracking down, to go to those who had self-reported them being here illegally and start to remove them from the US. Um, so those that were, were trying to do the right and honorable thing ended up on people's lists. And so he decided when he found that out and saw some of his friends who were in the same situation uh, facing deportation, he decided to leave on his own terms. And so he moved his family, who had only known life in the US, to Mexico. And because his name is on this list, he can't come back. And so he's exiled from the US, but they've never lived in Mexico either, and he doesn't fit. And they don't fit. And they're five, six years in, and they still don't fit. Do you get these images? I'm just trying to paint some like real life pictures for those of us for whom this is a new concept or a foreign concept. Exile's a literal reality, and there's a lot of forms of it, and there's a lot of reasons for it. And often or always, the concept of exile is, is just utterly confusing. My friend's words, I don't fit in Mexico, but I can't return to the U.S. Y'all, that's what captures the reality of exile. I don't fit here, but I can't go home. I don't fully belong here, but I can't return. It is hard. I love that Piper said it's sad. It's lamentable. That'd be the biblical word for it. It's lamentable. It's grievous. In many cases, it is not right. It's not how it should be. And, and I do want to make it just a, just a disclaimer before we move on. There are some realities of literal exile that do not translate into the spiritual exile that we're going to talk about. Is that fair? Um, like similar to how 
many Americans will cry persecution at things like someone allowing something to be legal, even if it's different than you, not forcing you to do something, but just allowing something else to be legal. We'll go persecution. That's not persecution. That's just the reality of living in a pluralistic world that is not God's country. So I don't want to overstate this exile image spiritually, but, but on one hand, the realities of literal exile are really helpful lessons to wisely navigate the tensions that God's people feel, or may I say that we should feel at least, sometimes we don't, they're helpful lessons to wisely navigate the tension that God's people feel today and to clarify why we don't feel at home in this confusing culture and to offer us wisdom as we live in this land that is not our own. So it can be helpful, helpful lessons. On the other hand, though, the Bible does use the term exile to describe God's people. Uh, in our call to worship, God's people were literally exiled into a land that's not their own. Jumping to the New Testament, Peter, Jesus' apostle, overtly refers to Christians as, quote, elect exiles. Back to the Old Testament. We'll camp out here next week. God sent Abraham and Sarah from their home into a foreign country. King David ran from King Saul, and then later his son Absalom exiled him. Ruth followed her mother-in-law Naomi from her home, Moab, to Israel. Joseph and Daniel and Esther were all Israelites who existed in the courts of foreign kings. Herod tried to kill baby Jesus, and so he and his family escaped to Egypt with their family. And as the Bible Project video brought out, Jesus himself was exiled from his true home at the right hand of our father to wander this world, a world of death instead of a world of life. And on and on and on and on. These are some of the stories that we're going to dwell on and dive into between now and Easter. And and in each one of them, we're going to find hope and we're going to find purpose and we're going to find some tangible lessons to help us find God in exile. So in other words, each, each biblical example is going to show God's people today, show us how we might stay holy and how we might pursue God and how we might pray and worship and be lights in the darkness as we live in this spiritual exile. These real historical people in real historical exile can show us how to work and bless God's, uh, bless not God's people, bless non-believers and share good news while we're in spiritual exile. And these stories will help us see how we can engage in culture and why we need community and what mission can look like, even how to navigate politics and war in spiritual exile. Do we need some of these examples today? Do we need help with some of these things? I think we do. So we're going to start this journey through the Bible by asking, how did we get into this mess? How did God's people get ourselves into this mess? What's our true home? Why were we banished? And the answer should not be a surprise. It's why I hope you read Genesis 1 through 3 this week. We have these handouts in the back, and it tells us what, uh, what, what few chapters we're going to be in every week. I would love for you to read those so we can have a little bit of a conversation and a context around what's gone on. Um, they're all narratives, and so they're fun reading. Um, and it gives us a little glimpse into some of the people that God sent into exile.
But God's people at the beginning of the Bible were designed for this perfect home called what? Called Eden. God's people were created to live forever in perfect relationships. And jot this down if you want to have something to come back to week after week after week. We were designed to live in perfect relationships with God, with ourselves, with each other, and with the world around us. First couple chapters of the Bible, God created his people to live forever with him and in perfect relationship with God, with ourselves, with each other, and with the world. All four of those relationships matter in the coming weeks and for the rest of today. But then whether you read Genesis 1 through 3 this week or not, they're familiar chapters. So what are some ways that the Bible describes our first and true home? What's God say about Eden? What's God say about our true home? How does he describe it? It's good. Over and over and over again. It's the most common used word other than Lord in Genesis 1. What else? How does God describe our first and perfect home? What are some things God put in? Productive. It's productive. Abundance. It's productive to the end of abundance. Well done, guys. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's lavish grace and provision in this kind of stuff. And there's things to do as, as Adam and Eve would share God's mission of helping the earth thrive, cultivating this garden. What else? How else does God describe it? It's safe. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't have to worry. There were no thorns or brambles even, this kind of stuff. There was no shame. Just one of the things I'm glad you picked up on that is, as Gabe read a little bit ago. Why are you hiding, God says, because we realized we were naked and we were ashamed. All the things in the garden accepted the way God made them and worked in beautiful unity, not uniformity. They didn't try to become each other. Land didn't try to become water. Moon didn't try to become sun. Apparently, that's real dangerous. Like, I don't know tides, but apparently it's real bad if the moon goes away for the rest of the world. Um, if land tries to become water, all of our homes have problems. But, but everything God created existed beautifully as God created it and worked with everything else God created in perfect unity for God's glory. Like, we can't fathom what this home is supposed to be like, but man, we know it's not what we experience today. Everything that God made was perfect. Full intimacy with God. Again, let's go back to those four relationships. Full intimacy with God. No conflict or division with other people unashamed and unblemished and unsinful in ourselves, and then perfect unity with the world. God, self, others, world. It was perfect. All of it was perfect. Everything God made, the home that God created for us and the home that God invited us into was at the end of Genesis 1, not just good, but when God saw his complete creation, it was very good. There's a theologian uh, named Hiro Namnun. It's a fun name. And he writes this, everything that God made was very good. A garden with no sin, no death, no defiance. This is the world we were made to inherit. And then he goes on a little bit later to say, we were created for beauty and splendor. We were created for companionship and commitment. We were created for a close relationship with our Creator. Like, this is our true home. 
This was, this was heaven on earth. When, when Paul writes in, in, in his letter to the Philippians that we are citizens of heaven, that's our true home. We can often think of like the cloud place in the sky that looks a little bit more like Thor's home. Um, our home was here. Citizens of that kind of perfection. How long did that last? One swipe of your Bible app, two pages of your Bible, and then... When, God, uh, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were naked and they knew, sorry, the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. Noon continues and said, this is this. That, that instance, was the dawn of our exile. It was put into motion in these, I'll add six simple verbs. Seeing, delighting, desiring, taking, eating, and giving of a fruit of disobedience. Where did exile start? When we saw something, we decided it was better than God's way when we delighted in something more than God, when we desired our own way and other wisdom, when we took for ourselves rather than receiving, when we ate and consumed and then started to pass that down. And I would just pause and ask, like, what's your version of that today? Because it's really easy to look at Adam and Eve and be like, man, but if we've inherited it, What's, what's your version of their brokenness and sin today? In other words, taking, those, taking a few of those words, what are the things that you see and desire and delight in that pull you away from God and tempt you to live as citizens of this world, not heaven? Because here's the deal. The, the deceiver is still at, at great strength and power. And in And the serpent didn't show up to Adam and Eve and go, hey, you should disobey God, follow me. And they were like, yeah, that sounds great. No, it was subtle. It was tricky. And that same tricky deceitfulness, did God really say this? Is he really that good? Does he, does he really meet you in this area of your struggle? Or isn't this other thing really helpful? Couldn't this other thing be more relieving? Couldn't this other thing give you a better answer? Couldn't this other person be, be more hope? At least you can see that person. Anyone ever had those thoughts? What people or philosophies ask you is, is God really good? Trust me. What things or desires become false gods or pursuits? Because Genesis 3 results in Follow me on these four relationships. Division and blame between Adam. Any relationships that you have with other people experience brokenness ever? Genesis 3 resulted in pain and birth, hard work, like undo hard work, shame and hiding. Anyone feel discontent or broken in your view of yourself, relationship with yourself today? The ground was cursed. The world around them became difficult to live in. 
Anyone see any relationships with the world around us that feel broken and hurting today? And then maybe the most talked about result and the primary relationship and the deepest fissure. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What's the last broken relationship? It's the relationship with God. Anyone feel brokenness in your relationship with God ever? Bottom line here, y'all, is that sin and disobedience led to brokenness and exile. And like Adam and Eve, every single human in history since has faced those broken relationships with ourselves and with others and with the world around us and with God. And every human in history since Adam and Eve faces banishment from that true, perfect home. And every human in all of history since Adam and Eve experiences the confusion and distraction and division and temptation and realities of life in a land that's not our own. And we receive from those broken relationships. And frankly, we add to those broken relationships. And we experience them at no fault of ours, and we experience them at fault of ours, God, self, others, world. And man, that brokenness has domino effects, doesn't it? Pain and death and disease and dis-ease and lies and injustice and suffering and on and on and on and on and on and on we could go. That's the world we live in. We've been banned from getting back to the tree of life. By who? Again, we didn't choose it. Who put the cherubim there? Who is keeping us from our home? God. And it's okay if that causes you to wrestle a little bit. But God exiled his people. Why? Because his people chose life outside of God's home and design. But even as God sent Adam and Eve from Eden, he did so with a purpose and a promise. And that same purpose and promise is where I want us to end this first conversation because both purpose and promise still apply to us today. What's God's purpose? I want to go back to part of Genesis 1 that we didn't read. What was God's purpose in making mankind? That we, wouldn't, that we would not be alone? Yeah. yeah, that's part of it. To image God. And we can't do that alone. So the brokenness and the relationships came in and marred that a little bit. But God's perfect design for his people, for you and I, this is how God originally designed you, not just Adam and Eve. God created mankind, humans, in his image. In the image of God, he created humans. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, you're created in God's image to bring God's image into the world. Now that happened perfectly before Genesis 3, and then it happened imperfectly, but still happens after Genesis 3. We're created with the same purpose. Adam and Eve took God's image out of Eden imperfectly into the different places they went. In other words, despite 
or maybe in the midst of, brokenness and pain and death and suffering and division and confusion. Adam and Eve represented their one true God. They were ambassadors, if I may, from their one true home. And they showed the rest of the world a greater kingdom. They went into the world with hope in exile. That's still what we get to do, sisters and brothers. So there's choices to make in every circumstance, every relationship, every conversation, every interaction. We get to speak and act and think like a citizen of heaven, or we can think and act and speak like a citizen of this world. There's purpose in exile. And finally, what promise did God give to Adam and Eve? Even as he explained their brokenness and the result of their sin? You know what promise God gives in Genesis 3? He actually says it to the serpent, which is really interesting. The Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise, or in other translations, crush the serpent's head, but you shall bruise the heel of the woman's descendants. Who's Eve's full and final pinnacle of offspring? This is the answer you should get. Yeah. The fullness of this is Jesus. What did Jesus do in his life and death and resurrection and reign? And what will Jesus fully do in the future? Jumping from the beginning of the Bible to the end as a little preview of where we're headed. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. What does that sound like? Sounds a lot like Genesis 3, didn't it? God will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things, the things that we experience between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21. These things will pass away. Doesn't that sound a lot like Genesis 1 and 2, if you've ever read those chapters? God's promise through Jesus is to reconcile all of those broken relationships and to restore all that brokenness and to remove all those domino effects of sin and disobedience. Y'all, in Christ, God's promise is to bring us home from exile. In Christ, God's promise is to bring us home from exile. And in Genesis 3, God sacrificed an animal and he covered Adam and Eve's shame and sin in a way they couldn't and he clothed them by his power. And that's the first foreshadow we get in all the Bible of Jesus' death and resurrection and his sacrifice for us and being clothed in his righteousness. So in this church, we have our greatest hope. In the coming weeks throughout the Bible, we'll see and learn from other people who follow Adam and Eve's exile. Every day, and specifically this year, will feel like we live in spiritual exile. But, but, exile's not forever. 
at the end of the Bible, in eternal life, there's good news. Jesus redeems brokenness and separation. Jesus restores relationships, God, self, others, and the world. Jesus ends exile. One day, God will bring you home. Is that good news? That's the hope and that's the purpose and that's the promise we're reminded of when we, when we take this meal called communion. Um, so if you're new with us, the way we do this is we'll come up. Uh, if you're sitting in the rows, there's, there's uh, stations at the tables if you're sitting at the tables, but this, there's crackers and juice and wine. The juice is lighter colored. And, and we'll take and dip in either, and then if you'll come back um, and just hold it for a minute, we'll take it all together. Um, but will you come? And then we'll talk about that promise here in just a sec. The table is open for anyone who believes. So back to that question of uh, what's your version of Adam and Eve? What do you see? What do you desire? What do you pursue? What, tempta- what tempts you to live as if we're citizens of this world back rather than the other? Um, the, the utter declaration of communion is Jesus is better than those things. Um, and it's hard to remember that sometimes. Uh, throughout the Bible, throughout history, God's people have always had these marker moments, whether it's building an altar, whether it's making a specific sacrifice, or even communion among a thousand other things. Communion is a reminder of God's promise. Um, that all those things that tempt us to live as if we're citizens of this world, not the other, they're very real. And frankly, we can't cut through the distraction and noise sometimes. We need God, by His Spirit, to do what we can't. And we can't, but we need God to do what only God can do is the declaration of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, We can't restore those relationships. We can't cut through the temptation. We can't, but God can and God did. And to seal that promise on the night that he died, Jesus took bread and dipped it in the cup and he passed it around saying, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. It's the first foreshadow we get of going home. Take and eat.